The Virgin Mary's Victory Over Antichrist, foretold in the Old Testament. A conversation with Father James Maudsley and David Rodriguez, held at the conference, Fatima, The Moment Has Come, in Manchester, New Hampshire. Father Maudsley's new book, Crushing Satan's Head, is available at Amazon in hardback, softback, and Kindle editions. This is his second book in a series of four. The first book deals with the mystery of the cross, and the third book, set for release on March 25th, 2023, is centered on the holy sacrifice of the Mass. These books are excellent, and we highly recommend them. So we're going to do something a little different right now. You've already met us, and therefore there's no need to make an introduction. Again, I'm David Rodriguez, work with the Fatima Center, and I'm joined by Father James Maudsley. We did this in Kentucky where we just got to chat. Some of you may have seen the video online. If you haven't, I recommend you go see it. You'll get to know Father Maudsley a little better that way. But we thought this would be a slight change of pace where we could have a conversation over a topic that is dear to both of our hearts. So as you know, Father Maudsley has just written a book that got published called Adam's Deep Sleep. And what he does in that book is he goes back to the Old Testament roots, right? Prefiguring types of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, his death. He's coming out with another book on December 8th, which is one that Fatima Center is certainly very interested in, but every Catholic is, because it specifically deals with Our Lady and how Our Lady is also prefigured in the Old Testament. Not just Our Lady, but more specifically even, how she will crush the Antichrist, how she crushes the devil. That's a great book, and that's why it's coming out December 8th, Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And then he's got the other two books, one that will be on the Mass, and so those are coming out next year. At our next conference, we'll talk more about those. So, thank you, Father, for joining me. Maybe you could just start by explaining, in case some of our audience doesn't know, what this reference is even to crushing Satan's head. Right. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, and God gives them their penances, he addresses the serpent and says that, um, in fact, I think the serpent comes first. I should know. Um, because the way it describes Adam, Eve, the serpent, the serpent, Eve, Adam, and Adam, Eve, the serpent, it's almost like a serpent, the way the description goes. Um, and he says he will put enmity between you and the woman, or the vulgar has enmities, plurality, and between your seed and her seed, and she will crush your head. So the devil is going to be very interested Is who is this woman that's going to crush my head? Um, and in fact, St. Jerome's Vulgate has ipsa, she will crush your head. But the Septuagint, the Greek, has aftos, he will crush your head. And the Hebrew, most of the manuscripts have he, but some of them have she. And some of the famous Jewish commentators read it as she. This is the proper pronoun confusion. <laughs> because in, in Hebrew who is he and he is she they're the words and what's fascinating is in the Torah as Moses wrote it the first five books of the Bible and they didn't have vowels back then written into the script the three letters for he and she are identical you can't distinguish between them in the Torah and only when you get to the book of Joshua onwards 
the second letter between for he and she changes between a vav or a yod so you can tell even without the vowels who it is but I think this um, uncertainty is deliberate it's from God when there's that much unclarity it's not and then the Pope Pius IX on 8th of December 1854 in, in Aphibolus said that the woman will crush the serpent's head Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary will crush his head so this is the understanding of the church, whatever the grammatical questions over he or she. And th- that's why on the cover of the book, we have this painting from Caravaggio, shows Jesus' foot on Mary's foot on the snake's head. So it's Jesus acting through Mary. And Caravaggio painted that 400 years ago. This is the understanding of the church. It's a joint act. And Jesus is like laughing. He's having fun. It's a game. <laughs> And Mary has this maternal care for him because it's through her motherhood and the motherhood of billions of women that this globalist, antichrist, lifeless, godless program of death will be defeated. And then St. Anne is looking on and perhaps she even stands for the old covenant, looking on in harmony with the new. And so that if we go into the old covenant scriptures, the Old Testament, we will see this that God promised in the Garden of Eden comes up again and again and again and again and it's amazing because the first couple of times you read the Old Testament probably won't even notice and then the more times you read it the more examples jump out at you and then they become unmissable well thank you Father so Genesis 3.15 for those of you who want to jot that down in your notes I know someone mentioned that in the last talk and I'm just going to piggyback on what you just finished saying there because I do think that's very interesting so often, I don't know, I think we read the scriptures in such a scientific, sterile way, almost not in this full of life and vibrancy, I think the way the fathers did. And so I think a lot of times the way the fathers read things is that you're reading, if you can create an image in your mind of what you're reading, instead of just like words, but if you create this image, then what you start seeing is, so I think what you just said, that again and again and again, like that same image keeps popping up. And so the fathers would see that, and as they saw this image come again and again, you start being sort of hit over the head. God's trying to tell me something. It's sort of undeniable. Mm-hmm. And so with this image of she crushes his head, you start out your book by not just talking about Eve, but then going on to Jael, who crushed Sisera with the tent spike. So you have this woman crushing the bad guy with a spike driven right through his head. And then you have the woman of Thebes dropping the big millstone on Abimelech. So another woman crushing the bad guy. You have, of course, Jephthah's daughter, which is slightly different, but very important. And then you have the handmaiden of the city of Abel, right? She's uh, crushing Sheba. And then you have Judith. That's, I think, the one most people know, that she cuts off Holofernes' head with her own sword. And then, of course, you have Esther, who's basically crushing Haman through her intercession. And she's mediatrix of all graces. And then you even have Susanna, who's crushing those two evil judges through her purity and her fidelity to God. So you have all these different women throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, that are crushing Satan's head, in a sense. Not Satan's, I'm sorry, but crushing the bad guy's head, who represents as a type, Satan, right? Yeah. So what is the serpent's head? The serpent's head is different to the serpent, and it's, it's different to Satan. Satan is not a serpent, right? He's a spirit, an angel, a fallen angel, a demon. But he took the form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden. He doesn't have a body. Christ has his body he became incarnate with from the flesh of the Virgin Mary, and he has the body of Christ the Eucharist and the body of Christ the Church. Real flesh and blood, your flesh and blood, your members of the body of Christ. 
Satan doesn't have that. It's complete disintegration, dry dust that can't come together. But the Antichrist is, if you like, the one who follows him most closely. He's the head of the serpent's work. So this crushing the serpent's head is about crushing the Antichrist, who will be a human being, a man on earth. And as there have been many prefigurations of the Old Testament, so we're seeing many examples through history of these being defeated by the church, but in the end it's going to be ultimate and global and total. What's interesting about the seven women there mentioned, every single one of them, they kind of saved the day for the whole community. Now, how many examples do you know from history where a woman has not only done the decisive act for victory, but she's done it to save the whole people from annihilation, She's done it in a sense alone, but as well if you look at these stories, it also involves a participation of everybody. They all have to do something to cooperate. Um, and where she's basically the leader that has figured this out, and by her virtue, she's won the day for everyone. And by, sorry, by crushing the enemy's head. There's not... Well, can anyone think of any examples from history? It's close. I'm not sure if she crushed the head, though. Can you say she crushed someone's head, or... Did I'd say she participated, certainly, in it. Um, was it a decisive defeat of the enemy? We can debate it, look into it, but it happens in these stories. Um, so total. So I think Judith is the first one we notice, because she's chopping off Holofernes' head with two hacks of his own sword. And that's important as well. It's always the enemy's, often the enemy's own weapon that ends up destroying them and the two hacks is because there's a, a prefiguration of what's about to happen within a couple of moments God likes to tell us he announces things in advance like Fatima is announcing in advance what is about to come um, he gives us warning and the story of Judith and key parts of the book of Esther and also Maccabees which are the Maccabean mother comes in here they were removed from the Protestant Bibles and Susanna, Daniel chapter 13 doesn't exist in Protestant Bibles so they're missing out on all this stuff about how Our Lady's going to help us in the end times if you don't become Catholic and read the Catholic Scriptures, you're not going to pick up on all this so where, where were we? Well I'll jump to one I mean, because we could go in through all of these and they're all very fascinating, I'll tell you as I read Father's book I was, I was just really floored by it and I do want to get into some of the things that just impressed me the most so you can comment on those and I'll give a little preface too for Fatima so one of them is Esther Read the book of Esther. Read it specifically thinking Esther prefigures Our Lady. Especially Our Lady is mediatrix of all graces. right? So, I mean, very quick review of the story of Esther. They are going to kill the entire Jewish nation. Haman is very upset because of Mordecai, and you can maybe explain in a minute what Mordecai represents. But then Esther's the queen. She's kind of been hidden for a long time. No one really knows where she's from. There's a hiddenness about her. She finally will reveal. Here I see like the revelation in Immaculate Heart I was just talking about a little while ago as well, although there's other levels of revelation. But she'll eventually reveal, let's say, her identity, and she will save the day. And then again, the tables will be turned, and exactly how the bad guy, Haman, wanted to destroy the relative, I'll put it that way, the kinsman of Esther, it falls apart and he gets hung on the gibbet, which is also symbolic again of the cross. So there's all kinds of things there. And the reason I want to point out Esther, besides the beauty of the story, is because some of you may or may not know this, Our Lady of Fatima appeared and she's dressed in that white, but the star of Esther is on her attire. 
Okay, so there's a very strong link that Our Lady of Fatima herself is drawing between herself and Esther. You could say that Our Lady of Fatima is saying, go look at the book of Esther to learn some things about me. Now, there's a lot of things there, some what we just said, but one of the ones that I think is also fascinating is that if you translate into the Gregorian calendar that we use, the day on which the Jews were going to be exterminated in the book of Esther, it's February 13th. February 13th. A significant date now with Fatima because of all those apparitions on the 13th. And for those of you who know, Sister Lucia, the last living seer, died on February 13th, 2005. I really think that God, by calling her on that day, was again calling us to mind something very significant. That's the day he takes his chosen seer up to heaven and he's saying, look back to what happened. The people were about to be annihilated and destroyed. Like the miracle of the sun falling and destroying all of us. But then the tables get turned and there's this life-saving action. In that case, by Esther. In this case, it'll be by Our Lady of Fatima. So I really think there's many, many connections, but the Star of Esther and February 13th are the two that really sort of grip me, and our Father can explain a lot more about Esther. Before the tables were turned, Esther had the whole people fast for three days, praying and fasting, as Judith had the whole of the town of Bethulia fasting while she went to destroy the enemy. So that is the beginning of our participation, to trust in that. Judith said, I'm going to go do something, not going to tell you what it is, and it will be unheard of until it's happened. So we begin with the prayer and the penance, but then Esther had the whole people go out and actually take their swords and literally put to death their enemies. So the Jews have the Feast of Purim to remember this. We don't have it in the Catholic calendar because we don't want to celebrate bloodshed. That's not the idea. We're supposed to have a spiritual fight and prefer to be killed than to kill if in sacrifice. I'm not talking about the military here. And so many of these fights, like Jael knocking the tent peg through Sisera's head, or the woman of Thebes throwing the millstone on his head, this doesn't mean we're supposed to be out there with hammers and tent pegs and, and swords. But it is that brutal. The fight is that brutal in the spiritual realm. We're supposed to be this uncompromising with sin, the devil trying to get a part in our soul. So of these series, we'll see why the figures against the female figure are genuine figures of the Antichrist in their ambitions to take over everything, often in the service of a distant leader. So with Jael, it was the Canaanite king Jabin that had sent his general Sisera in. And with Judith, it's Nebuchadnezzar who has sent his general Holofernes in to do his dirty work. And this is a figure of the devil having the Antichrist in to take over. But on the other side, on the side of the women, there's always a man involved as well. Because it's all a figure of Jesus and Mary, our Redeemer and the co-redemptrix. So you have Eve given to Adam as a helper, and that's where it went slightly wrong, and sin entered into the world and death. Um, but then with Jael, there's Barak, who's supposed to be leading the army, and he comes down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men, and they put to flight the enemy army but he hesitated and so the prophetess Deborah said because you hesitated it's going to be a woman who wins the day and so it was Jael who ends up killing Sisera but there's a teamwork between Jael and Barak I need to make an interjection what I see here with the hesitation does anyone get it? think of Fatima 
Who's the man who's hesitating? It's not our Lord. The Pope. Yeah. The Pope is hesitating. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. So you're seeing this type play out. The Pope is that vicar of Christ, so he can fit theirs. But he's hesitating, and he's not doing what he's supposed to do. And so we have these 14 failed consecrations because he's hesitating. He's Barak, not finishing the job. And so it's going to have to be left for the lady, our Blessed Mother, to do it. Right. And then with the woman in Thebes who threw the millstone down the tower, there was beforehand, Jotham gave a prediction of what was going to happen. He stands for Jesus, the younger brother, who the Antichrist couldn't wipe out. There's always this thing as well about 70. Like Abimelech, he killed his 70 brothers in order to have power. That represents the 70 nations of the world. Except he survived and the youngest, Jotham, survived. And it's unclear if that means there's 70 of them or 71 or 72. But you know in Luke's Gospel, Jesus sends his disciples out to preach and some covers have 70, some have 72. So we can think of 70 nations of the world plus the city of man and the city of God as the last two, Abimelech and Jotham. So Jotham gives the prophecy of what's going to happen and the woman fulfills it. Again, Jesus and Mary. Or Jephthah and his daughter. It is very different. We'll come to that. It's the saddest story in the Old Testament. But it's awesome. It's all about Calvary. A man and his daughter. Then there's the wise woman in Abel and the leader of David's army, Joab, who play there key roles. She ends up having Sheba's head cut off by the mob and thrown over the wall of the city so that the city isn't destroyed in war. She just figures out a clean way of doing this. Um, but that's the one you don't notice after you've picked up on Judith cutting off the enemy's head. And then you read again and of course you notice Jael doing it and then even the woman of Thebes. And finally after you've read a few times the Old Testament and you see this Antichrist figure having his head thrown over the wall of a city by a woman organizing it, a wise woman who says God's raised a mother in Israel and says to Job, are you going to let the inheritance be lost to God? His inheritance is his saints. Mary wants many, many saints for God. That's his inheritance. He wants to live in our souls. Sorry, diversion, promised land. What is the promised land? It's a figure of all these souls of the saints where God lives in them and they live in him. Then there's... In Judith, who's the male figure in Judith, the book of Judith, who participates in the victory? It's quite obscure because the leaders that you're saying about the Pope hesitating. It's worse there. In the town of Bethulia, they just say, okay, we've had this siege going on 34 days. The people have had enough. We're going to quit. And the leaders say, okay, five more days, then we'll quit, which comes to 39 days, right? It's the same when Moses was 40 days up the mountain, they made the golden calf on day 39. If they just waited one more day, Moses would have been back. That's where we've got to hang on to the end, yeah? When God decides the end is. And Judah said to them, look, you can't make this deal when we're going to quit. We don't quit. We trust in God. Now I'll go and sort this out and I'll be back. She was back before the five days were up. The time was shortened, yeah? Because it was grim. And the leaders in Jerusalem, she said, we're ready to hand out the holy things for the people to eat because it was that desperate. But there is a man involved, Achio. He's an Ammonite who accursed one of their daughters of Lot. If you know how Lot and his daughters founded the Moabites and the Ammonites, it's not pretty. Um, he kind of redeemed them as Ruth redeems the Moabites. He told Holofernes exactly about the, the Hebrews. He said, these people aren't like any other people. If they are not sinning against their God, there's nothing you can do to touch them. If they are, if they've let go of their traditions, 
you'll roll right over them like everybody else. This is so much for us now with the traditional mass. It's black and white in the book of Judith. If they hold on to their traditions, no one in the world can touch them. It's so gruesome how it describes the pleasure that Nebuchadnezzar and Holofernes have in the bloodshed they're causing in all these nations, destroying, it says, their groves and their temples and their false gods, so that they will all worship Nebuchadnezzar. This is the plan of the devil, right? Through the Antichrist that we all worship Satan. It is totally telling us what's coming. But Akio not only relates the truth about the God of the Hebrews, and he recounts their history wonderfully in a short way, Holofernes is furious with this answer, as if anyone can stand up to him. And they have Akio taken after he's roughed up and beaten. They tie him to a tree outside the town of Bethulia, and it says they tie his hands and the feet to the tree and left him there to die. But of course, he's rescued by... The, but that's just such a figure of the cross, right? So you have this man who spoke the truth about Hebrew history, who for that is crucified. Um, and Judith wins the day. You got to be careful when you speak the truth about <laughs> yeah. Hebrew history. Right? They might crucify you. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of Canadian father again. If you're missing some of this, don't worry. His book's coming out December eighth. Get it, read it, and read it again and again because it'll be there. But just to highlight a few things he said, he talked about the fasting and the importance of fasting. That is connecting with what we were just talking about with reparation. You know, fasting, the prayer, the alms, I mean, that's a key element of reparation. It's my own conviction. I mean, here I'm just speaking personally, no dogma, but I think when the Pope actually does get around to consecrating Russia correctly, well, what we know is it has to be a day of reparation. So there's going to be a lot of reparation, I think. Revealing the third secret might be appropriate reparation, but certainly calling all of us to fast. You know, we see that with the Ninevites and Jonah. There's a great history of that. I'm not sure if we're going to get any kind of consecration without us fasting, you know, doing our own suffering, our own prayers. There's probably going to be martyrdom involved. Again, when you're speaking the truth, there's martyrdom. There's going to be bloodshed because that's the sacrifice we're going to need. But the fasting is important. The three days, the three days are key. Obviously, that connects us with the resurrection the Father just mentioned. But there's also a lot of prophecies, I think. Uh, well, certainly there's prophecies about three days of darkness. We've handled about those. But I think they get connected in with Fatima because there's some great miracles associated with that. And you have, even in the Old Testament, the darkness that fell over Egypt. Right? That's the last plague that comes right before the 10th when the angel of death comes. An unheard of something that's going to take place. Again, we have some parallel there with Fatima. There's this unheard of miracle we've never seen, and there's unheard of miracles that are coming forth. Even the consecration of Russia is something quite unheard of. That's why a lot of theologians have been opposed to it. Right? They get in their high and mighty ivory towers and they say, well, we haven't, this, this consecration to Our Lady doesn't quite seem right. or we're, It's something we haven't quite heard of. It, it, it's what God's asked for. Right? It's okay if we have something unheard of when it comes straight from God. It's part of His divine plan. But you see the seeds for it in everything Father's explaining from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You want to keep going with this or do you want to move to the next section? you have more, keep more Just things? Very briefly with the more. last, it's Mordecai and Esther obviously work, showing Jesus and Mary, and Daniel and Susanna showing Jesus and Mary. Or is this male-female pair? I could say something brief about the women, just the variety of them. You know, Our Lady's not going to come back to earth to crush the Antichrist's head bodily. She's going to do it through those who are faithful. So through many, but in all somehow fitting into the figure of Mary through our devotion to her Immaculate Heart. So just consider the variety of the women involved in this. There's there's another section with four more women um, who prefigure it. So we have those who act alone, like Jael, or those who act in a melee of people, like in Thebes. 
There were young ones, like Jephthah's virgin daughter, and old, like the woman of Abel. Gentile, like Ruth, or Jew, like the Maccabean mother. A prostitute, like Rahab, and a chaste wife, like Susanna. An empress, like Esther, and a mother, like Tamar. A widow, like Judith, and a devoted queen, Bathsheba. So somehow Mary gathers up all their lives for the perfect finish as she gathers all loving souls to present them to her sovereign son in heaven. We're all involved in this. So Father also now just mentioned these other four women. That's the second sort of section in the book that I kind of want to cover because I found this fascinating. I think all of you are familiar with the genealogy that St. Matthew gives us at the start of his gospel. He traces Christ's human lineage. And if you read that, you know, it's this one begot this one begot this one begot this one. We're sort of, you said, and, and then there are these four women. They just get snuck in there. And so those always kind of jar you, like, well, why these four women? Right? So it's Tamar, it's Rahab, it's Ruth, and it's Bathsheba. And as I mentioned when I introduced myself, I said I'd been in seminary. And so they gave us answers for these things in the seminary. I guess you can preach on them. So maybe you've heard some priests preach on these things. One of the things they tell you is, well, it shows you that there are sinners in this line. And so I thought, oh, that makes sense. These four, and they kind of point out some of the quote-unquote sin that they've done. And I'm like, oh, so that's why. To show that, you know, our Lord can come from us human beings who are, let's say, sinful. And another time they say, well, no, those are all like Gentiles. So it's kind of showing the union between the all nations under our Lord. So you've got to have a few, let's say, Gentile women in here. And so I kind of bought that. So those are the two reasons I got. Well, lo and behold, I go and I start reading Father Maudsley's book, and he brings these four up, and he brings up the genealogy, and he mentions those two reasons, and he goes, eh, but that can't quite be it. He says, that can't quite be it because of the fifth woman. What's the fifth woman in that line? Who's he leading? Mary, Blessed Mother. And Blessed Mother is neither sinful, she's sinless, and you know, she's not this Gentile foreigner. So he says, Blessed Mother gives us a clue. What is up with these four women? It's also that Bathsheba could well have been Jewish, and I think Tamar, um, yeah, although it was very early on in Israel's life then, and also, you can't really accuse Ruth of any sin. Um, and it's misunderstood completely with Tamar and Bathsheba, whether they sinned or not, in such a way as they're accused of doing. So even those two explanations don't quite fit the whole pattern. And you think how many men in that line sinned. You don't need to throw four women in there to show that <laughs> Jesus can come from sinful flesh. So but why these four women? What's the connecting line? I'd read from someone else, so I admit this wasn't my idea. It just spoke about the, about the thought that they all conceived by someone who wasn't their apparent husband. Which is, you look into it. Conceived the greater. And it's amazing. Well, that's the, I thought, wait a minute. It's not just by someone who wasn't their husband. It's someone greater than their apparent husband and much more with Joseph. There's a development between the four because the first one, Tamar, she was married to Ur, the older son of Judah, and it says he was displeasing to God, and God slew him. Um, and then Onan, who wanted to have marital relations, but didn't want to have children through it, so he spilled his seed on the ground, and God slew him. And then Judah's third son, who Judah was then afraid of losing him as well, so he held them back from Tamar. So she's watching the biological clock. On, by which on this clock depends our Messiah. And I don't know if you know Genesis 38, interrupting the story of Joseph to tell us how she's not related to Judah, okay, but she ends up getting impregnated by him, by the father of these three men. 
and in Hebrew understanding, the father is always greater than the sons. I'm not talking about the Holy Trinity here. So she conceives by someone greater than her apparent husband's, and not even Judah knew about it. Remind me to come back to that. Right? You well, I was going to jump in right now on that point. Yeah. I, I, wanted I, to I wanted to try and get this thing right, off the, we'll the development. Yeah, yeah. So you had these guys that were sinning against nature sexually, and that's why they died. They're not great heroes. But then with Rahab, she was a prostitute. So who knows who her presumed husband is until the two spies come in, and she saves the day for them so they can take Jericho, so they can take the Holy Land. And one of them marries her but he's better than the guy bunch of guys who go visit a prostitute cleared up the thing with the spies and the husband of Rahab because of course there was the first lot of spies who went to spout Canaan 12 of them of whom Joshua and Caleb were the good guys but then at the end of that 40 years they sent different spies into Jericho one of whom was Salmon who married Rahab and so the line went on then with Ruth, she had a nearer kinsman who could have married her, but in the end it was Boaz, who was of the tribe of Judah, whereas his other kinsman was the tribe of Ephraim. And in the Psalms it tells us God has rejected Ephraim and chosen Judah. He's also greater. He was also wealthier. Um, he marries her. Then with Bathsheba, her husband Uriah was an absolute hero. He was one of the 30. And not just brave in battle, you know, not flinching from going right in there to the thick of the fight where he's going to die. And not just being obedient, coming and going wherever he's sent. But his chastity, when he comes home from battle and David says, go in, have some drinks and see your wife. And he sleeps on the doorstep because he says, it's not right for me to have the comfort of my wife while my brothers are out there fighting. This man is a picture of chastity and obedience. And in all this, he's pointing to St. Joseph. And that's from the church fathers as well. I think St. Bernard. So you, from men who are sinning against nature, sexually, to men who are going into prostitute, which is a sin, but it's not against nature. It's a grave sin, not against nature. Then to Boaz's other kinsman who doesn't want to marry because he has worldly concerns. That's not a sin. What he did was legal, but it wasn't great. And then to Uriah, who is an absolute hero. And then you need another thousand years for that kind of extrapolation to get up to the level of sanctity of St. Joseph, who was the presumed father of Jesus. But of course we know it's God the Father is the Father, <laughs> infinitely greater. And I think that's the reason St. Matthew includes these four women, which I don't think he sat back and worked this out. Um, I, I think it's the Holy Spirit put it there. He spoke with Mary. Maybe Mary had him write it. Mary understood the Old Testament like we can't begin to understand. But I'm totally open. Someone else show me a better reason and I'd love to read it. Might, might be that part right there. So while I'm reading this, the one thing and I want to just share this, you can read it yourself, but as I read that story about Tamar and Judah that Father was just detailing a little bit about, I couldn't help but think, wow, the whole message of Fatima in many ways is contained in this story. Back in Genesis 38, God's already foretelling this. So look at it. One of the details that Father hadn't gotten to was, again, Judah didn't do the right thing by what he was supposed to do. He's afraid and he hesitates and he delays and he's not doing what God commands him to do. So again, I see there what's happening at Fatima and that the Pope is delaying. 
Because our Lord even gave a warning. He said, tell my ministers that if they delay, he makes a reference, he's like the kings of France. So if you haven't heard of that, that's because in 1689, our Lord told the king of France through St. Margaret Mary Alcoque to consecrate France to the sacred heart of Jesus. And King Louis XIV, the great sun king, who thought he was so great, decided not to do it. And neither did his son or his son. And so France never gets publicly consecrated to the sacred heart. We were talking about this last night, I think, at dinner, where we were saying that if France had been consecrated to the sacred heart, France becomes the greatest nation. Catholic nation takes over, really, all of the Americas. You wouldn't have had Protestantism in this land. It would have all been Catholic. And then the empire that England got, they say the sun never set on the British Empire. Sorry, Father, I know you're from the British Empire. But the, the empire that they had, they wouldn't have had it. It would have all been Catholic. I mean, talk about a completely different world we would live in if the French kings had just obeyed and consecrated France to the Sacred Heart. And then they would have gotten a lot of glory too. But they didn't. So instead, the French king lost his head at the guillotine, lost his legislative power first, lost all his authority, and then he got his head chopped off. And then in 1931, in Rianjo, Spain, our Lord is telling Sister Lucia, tell my ministers, i.e. Pope and bishops, that they better not delay like French ministers when they didn't consecrate the Sacred Heart. So that's kind of what we think sometimes about the hundred years, because from the time our Lord asked in 1689 to 1789 when the French Revolution happened, and I think it was June 17th when they stripped the king of his legislative power, it was exactly a hundred years to the day. So we, that's what we've talked about the hundred years. So anyway, the delaying is there in Fatima. And then what happens is Tamar takes these things from Judah so that in the end the truth can be shown. And the things she takes are his ring, his cord, and his staff. Judah's actually going to have her killed. The people are going to have her killed. They're saying she's done the wrong thing. So again, it looks like it's all over for her. But then she's going to produce these things and that's sort of what saves the day and reveals identity and why Judah finally does right by God and certainly by Tamar. And we could say that the ring represents his authority. right? We could say that the cord, it's a blue cord, certainly very Marian, but it also represents God's law, his commandments, things that the high priest would wear. And his staff certainly is, is like the cross. And so we here we see the triple role of the Pope who is supposed to govern the ring, who is supposed to teach God's law, the cord, and who's supposed to sanctify us, the cross. Which is certainly what every bishop has and every priest has, but that's exactly the authority that the popes have laid down in uncrowning Christ. They're not exercising their governing authority right, or teaching God's law right, and they're certainly not doing the sanctification right, for example, canceling the mass, all the other things that are going on. And so all these things that the Pope is lacking, you see it already there in the story of Tamar and uh, Judah, how that's lacking. But at the end, all that gets restored. Judah gets it all back and then does it right and there's the great victory. And I'm sitting there reading this, I'm going, wow, there's God telling us the plan of Fatima, kind of laid out for us. It's beautiful, it's amazing, it's awesome. Only, only God can do this. To come to the story of, oh, I should, I guess, say, it's called Crushing Satan's Head. Um, if you it'll be on Amazon, December the 8th comes out and Satan... The word is always written with a small s because he's going to get his head crushed. So, <laughs> and he can read. <laughs> so, um, Tamar and Judah. Oh, if you have comments on that, go for it. And then we'll get back to Jephthah. Yeah. That's maybe we can close. Right. I didn't quite catch if David said that Tamar, wanting to have a son, dressed herself as a prostitute and Judah went into her not knowing who she was. And that's when she took his staff and signet ring and quad. And later, when he saw she was pregnant, he said, well, you've committed adultery. You've got to be stoned to death. 
so she's going to be killed and then she produces the signs of I see it as well as the identity and authority and the cross the sacrifice the liturgy and she says whose are these he says they're mine or she says whoever these are is the father of the child and he says Tamar is more just than I am because it was his fault that she didn't have the husband so she hadn't sinned and the church fathers have claimed that she had not sinned he had sinned by denying her her natural rights um, and then he said okay of course you will live and the baby and it, it was she had twins so they all survived this is also a picture of the Jews and the Christians because if Judah representing the Jews and that's where the word comes from sees this woman and says she's a sinner and has to die and doesn't recognize the child and then eventually finds out because of the things which are produced which stand for the heritage of the Jews their worship their tribes is the staff yeah, their identity in the signet is the father of the child they're the father of Christ they'll recognize the son is theirs and then they all live as a happy family so I think it's talking about the conversion of the Jews and if any Catholic just finds fault with the Jews for how they've treated Christ and the church well that's exactly why it's important for us to think now how is the Pope and the bishops treating the church it's worse because we know the truth we know that the Holy Eucharist is Christ that's why the conversion of the Jews is necessary to restore these things to rescue us from this corrupt hierarchy but I'll save that for next year we should talk about Jephthah and his daughter right because uh, they've already given us a sign that we've got to wrap it up so this is really the last point we'll touch here there's, there's quite a bit about uh, St. Joseph in the book but we won't go there right now so I don't know probably most of you are not familiar with the story of Jephthah's daughter and so you'll probably have to clarify that just a little bit and maybe you could even draw a distinction. Iphigenia, when I read this story, if you're familiar with that story in Greek mythology, Battle of Troy, when the Greeks get ready to sail across, Agamemnon is their king, but the gods, the pagan gods, tell them you've got to sacrifice your daughter, you've got to kill Iphigenia, otherwise you won't get these good winds to sail because they had violated Apollo's law, blah, blah, blah. And so he actually goes and kills his own daughter. And then supposedly after that, they get the fair winds to sail across and the Battle of Troy will begin over that beautiful Helen. So I was thinking, huh, this idea of sacrificing your daughter has wormed its way into paganism, but I didn't realize that there's something similar, although much more profound and much more beautiful, in the Old Testament. So that's, I think, something you just explained to us, and then the connections to Our Lady. It's all in Judges chapter 11. A lot of these stories are very short, but if you read Judges 11, you see it, that Jephthah was this man born of another woman, it says, and... He is raised up as one of the judges to be a saviour of Israel, although this was before they had their full borders. It says that he was rejected by his brothers and he gathered around him like the outcasts and criminals. And you read a similar thing about David when he was on the run. And then it's similar with Jesus, gathering around tax collectors and fishermen. And probably similar today with those <laughs> simplest of the world's people that our Lady and God are happy to have on the team. Um, but he's going to go fight the Ammonites. And just before he fights them, because they're denying the whole truth about the history of the Holy Land and who got it and where it came from, he makes a vow to God and says, if you give me this victory, whoever is first out of my house, I'll offer them in sacrifice. 
And it's hard to know what he was thinking of when he said that. Well, some people say maybe he thought some goat or lamb was going to come out of his house running out to meet him, you know. Uh, but at least the Vulgate has quit quite like who? It's a person. Uh, the Hebrew is, I think is wider, like what comes out my house. Anyway, he has the victory, comes home, and his daughter comes out with symbols and like Miriam after crossing the Red Sea. And so he says, oh, she was his only daughter, beloved daughter, and it's just like Abraham and Isaac with the, the Greek, the words they use. It's, it's a hard chapter to read. He says, you've brought me very low. And he and she says, my father, if you've opened your mouth and made a vow to God, then keep your vow. And so he makes a holocaust offer. And she says, let me go two months into the mountains to mourn my virginity with my companions. She doesn't say I won't do it. Um, and she's not seeking to escape. And she's not going for time to think about it. She says straight away, yes. Um, and so she's sacrificed. Um and yet she did it with such a simplicity of heart and she's even trying to remove his pain and console him and you know that the victory had been won so you think well why go ahead now but if you've made a vow to God in fact this vow is invalid all the church fathers and, and moral theologians say you can't vow such a thing that's an invalid vow because it's irrational and cruel and dumb he shouldn't have gone through with it. He should never have opened his mouth this way and he should never have fulfilled it. That's not required. But in a way, she's ready for perfection of everything, no matter the cost to herself, her own life. You know, Mary was martyred on Calvary a thousand times. Um, so she thought that if you don't keep your vow, then perhaps you know that victory can be taken away. The Ammonites will come back. They did, in fact, but David saw them off. And I mean, I just want to make the connection at this point. If you haven't seen it already, I hope you do, especially with the talk I gave you. When Jephthah comes home, what is most cherished, what he loves the most, what is most beautiful, is what comes out of his house. And that's what he offers up. And so I think that is what's going on here with Fatima. God, what is most beautiful, what he cherishes most, is the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And Mary's willing to be offered up on our behalf. That's this whole reparation. The fact that God will do this, the fact that Our Lady will do this. I mean, talk about the love that they have. Uh, and that's why we also say the sorrowful and immaculate heart of Mary. That there is that sorrowful aspect to it also. But it's deeply rooted in this love. And it's this mystery that we won't understand, but it's the mystery of the cross, where it's that love and that self-offering that brings our salvation. And there's that whole element of the vow and how you can't break the vow. And so there you see our Blessed Mother making a vow to us that when we fulfill our part and we do what we're supposed to do, we're talking about living out the Roman Catholic SOS, living out the message of Fatima, the rosary, the consecration, the scapular, offering our prayers and penances, the first Saturday, and the Pope and the bishops do what they're supposed to do to fulfill their end of the vow, and she fulfills her end of the vow too to God. And there will be this sorrowful, but this immaculate and this beautiful thing. And, and therein lies the salvation. It's really, really powerful. And it's in the pages of the Old Testament already, the way God has preordained and planned all of this. You know, I thought it blasphemous. It upset me so much. And I realize now why, because of the story of Jephthah, where I was talking to this one guy. And again, the errors of Fatima, 
I mean, one guy was telling me that I knew, and, and he actually goes to the traditional Latin Mass. He was saying, oh yeah, Russia's been consecrated. But the reason we have to pray our rosaries and do these things is to remind Our Lady to keep her promise. <laughs> like, are you insane? I mean, that, that really is. It's blasphemous. It's scandalous to say that. And I think that's why I love how you say that as soon as he gets home, there's no hesitation by the daughter. Yes, Dad, I will do this. This vow will not be broken. That's Our Lady. She will not break her vow. As soon as we do what we're supposed to be doing, the Pope and the bishops and we all, we get on right track and we act like Jephthah's daughter, we're going to get this salvation, but we've got to do it. It's urgent. And in his vow, he said, whoever's first out of my house to welcome me. And it's like Mary is the first out of the human race to probably welcome God. In fact, he became incarnate in her. And um, it said that after that, every single year in her memory, the daughters of Israel or that Gilead, that area, would gather as one to remember her for four days. And in, in fact, I think dance. So it's a celebration, it's a feast, and her memory goes on and on and on, which again is like Mary. Sounds like devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in the whole church, all yeah. over the world, this remembrance of her. And this, uh, both her and her father trusting each other's will, that Jephthah even didn't doubt for a second that his daughter would fulfill his will, his vow, as God for Mary. So there's certainly a lot more in Father's book. Uh, I encourage you to look forward to on December 8th. But there's a lot in Adam's Deep Sleep, and you can start working on that one already right now. I think um, this is easier, an easier read than It is. I, I agree. I agree that Crushing Satan's Head is a little easier of a read. So uh, maybe it's because of Our Lady. I don't know. But thank you, Father. Thank you for these books you're writing. Thank you for being here. We're going to go ahead and take our 20-minute break, and then we'll be back with the Q&A. We'll see you in a bit. Thanks, Father. Thank you. Good. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. May it serve to make Our Lady's message of Fatima better known, loved, and obeyed by all. For more resources regarding Fatima and the Catholic faith, and to support this apostolate with your donations, we invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160 and may God reward you. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us.